Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And Donald J. Trump just about got it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR, on New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media, Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and many other fine affiliates, both internet-based and terrestrial. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another Oh, let's say thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Can you tell I'm not very happy about this today, Desi Doyen? Yes, I can. And I can understand why. Coming up, Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party's stolen U.S. Supreme Court has paid off big time today as the uh, court has issued two big and disturbing rulings on Tuesday. And they're not done with the week yet, uh, but those two rulings almost certainly would have come down in the opposite direction had the GOP not blocked President Obama's pick to fill the seat left vacant by Antony, uh, Antonin Scalia for nearly a year. In one decision, the court upheld President Trump's Muslim travel ban from a number of majority Muslim countries. And they mostly struck down a California law that had placed restrictions on so-called anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers, fake medical clinics, which failed to inform patients of their right to obtain a legal abortion. We will be joined by our Supreme Correspondent in this busy Supreme Court decision month, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate, who is... No doubt still furiously pouring over Tuesday's five to four decisions from the court's stolen Republican majority, even as we speak. Also coming up a bit later, 
Green News Report with Desi Doyen. You'll yeah. be here to cheer us up <laughs> um, with okay. rain, floods, and oil spills. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to be cheering up, but, you know, it is what it is. Well, don't scare everybody away. I've already <laughs> done a good enough job of that. True. Uh, in the meantime, on Tuesday, voters... Uh, headed to the polls for the 2018 midterm primary elections in New York, Maryland, Utah, Colorado, and Oklahoma. Also primary runoffs in Mississippi and South Carolina. If you live in one of those states, hopefully you have voted by now. We will have uh, notable results and or problem reports on our next broadcast. Uh, and while it often takes a while for Election Day and tabulation problems to come to light... Most of the problems I'm seeing today are coming out of Maryland, where some tabulator, uh, some some tabulation computer scanners are jamming and some polling places have been moved without proper notice. Uh, more on that as warranted tomorrow. But the biggest problem for voters so far is one that came to light on Monday night before Election Day. I mean, this is just hours before Election Day. Uh, we had already gone off the air on Monday uh, but as the Baltimore Sun uh, reported late on Monday night, as many as 80,000 voters will have to cast provisional ballots in Tuesday's primary election because of a computer glitch. Always a glitch. Or a snafu. Actually, a in the headline, it's snafu. Maryland voter registration snafu affects 80,000. Rather than say the word failure. Yes, so this glitch will affect 80,000 voters, and it turns out to be four times as many as state officials had initially announced. On the eve of the election, Democratic legislative leaders called for the immediate resignation of Motor Vehicle Administrator Christine Neiser, who oversees the agency which failed to forward voter information to the Maryland Board of Elections. Republican Governor Larry Hogan has ordered an audit of what went wrong, but the MVA uh, is said to have discovered the problem was more widespread after it initially announced uh, that nearly 19,000 were affected by this so-called glitch. According to a document obtained by the Baltimore Sun, the computer glitch affected voters across the state who tried to change their registration address or party affiliation through the MVA since April of 2017. So anyone in Maryland, apparently, who wanted to change parties, who had moved and who had done so through the MVA website since April of last year, would not show up on Tuesday's voter rolls. When the voters show up at the polls, the correct information will not be in the poll books and they will have to vote on a provisional ballot, reports the Baltimore Sun. Those ballots, however, will be counted, but they will be counted later, they say, on July 5. Election officials said they likely will not be able to say how many provisional ballots have been cast until Friday of this week. The delay could make it difficult to know the outcome of close races on election night. The MVA's Nizer said the agency underestimated the number of affected voters because officials were trying to tell people quickly about the problem. Nizer said in our quote, in our sense of urgency to inform the public, given the close proximity to uh, of the primary election, the numbers that were initially reported did not accurately reflect the total scope of the people impacted. On Sunday night, after the initial numbers 
uh, were announced. Governor Hogan's spokesperson called the problem a, quote, clerical error. Again, not a failure, but a clerical error. Well, it does sound nicer that way. And uh, dismissed concerns from Democratic lawmakers as, quote, conspiracy theory. The governor has directed the auditor for the Maryland Department of Transportation to conduct a comprehensive review of the situation, the spokesperson said, and has ordered MVA leadership to make themselves available for legislative hearings. The computer glitch, they love saying that, (laughs) began in April 2017 when new software was installed on the MVA website and walk-up kiosks. Apparently, voters who paid uh, to renew a driver's license or made other purchases did have their updated information sent to the Board of Elections. However, information was not relayed to the Board of Elections for voters who logged on only to change their voter information, according to the MVA. Again, that is not a glitch. That is a failure. That is a programming failure, if you want to call it that, but that is a failure. Stop downplaying these problems as glitches, hiccups, snags, and snafus, Baltimore Sun. Government watchdog organizations uh, have warned that there could be confusion at the polls. They said such late-breaking problems could erode voter trust and have a chilling effect on voters showing up at the polls. Common Cause Maryland said a lot of people don't believe that their provisional ballots are counted, even though they are. uh, Damon Effingham, acting executive director of the group, said that that is frustrating because because it is one of many parts of the political process, whether right or wrong, that disenfranchises people in the sense that it disillusions them. And I have to say, I agree with Damon Effingham here. I have seen progressives, progressive journalists out there repeating the nonsense that folks should not vote provisionally. Don't do that. They throw those away. That's not true. That is not true. I mean, if that is the only choice given to you, yes, please vote on a provisional ballot because, yes, provisional ballots are counted. It may be easier to toss some of them than uh, than it would be to toss normal ballots. But if you refuse to vote provisionally when that's the only option that you are given for any number of reasons, and if you're not on the uh, uh, the voting rolls for any number of reasons, including a failure by the DMV to properly update your information, if you refuse to vote, then that's you're giving your vote away. That's throwing your vote away. Nobody has to steal it from you. You are giving it to them by refusing to vote on a provisional ballot. If you want, fight like hell to fight to a vote on a normal ballot. But if you're not on the voting rolls at your precinct, you are most likely going to have to vote on a provisional ballot. And in most cases, yes, most cases, those provisional ballots are counted. Certainly the vast majority of them, uh, at least out here in California, where some 80 or 90 percent of provisional ballots are voted or or, I'm sorry, are are counted, whether they're counted correctly or not. That I can't tell you because they are still run through uh, uh, computer tabulators in most cases. And we don't bother to check to see if those computer tabulators are tallying votes correctly. But at least you have a, a chance of having your vote counted. So please help me this year throughout these primaries and into November. Please, 
help me counter the nonsense that provisional ballots are never tallied or that they're, you know, some people believe that absentee ballots and provisional ballots are only counted in close races. That is not true. They are counted in every race. So you're only helping to, uh, you know, helping the bad guys suppress the vote when you say that uh, provisional ballots are not counted or they're thrown away or they're placebo ballots. That is just false. Uh, the deputy elections administrator uh, in in Maryland said that voters need to know that the Maryland state government cares about the right of Marylanders to vote, the security of their information, and that processes are handled properly. Yeah, well, he said that uh, local officials have enough provisional ballots to handle the increased demand on Tuesday, calling it, quote, a pretty minimal impact at most precincts. Well, let's hope so, for Christ's sake. By the way, we still don't know why 118,000 voters did not show up on the Los Angeles County printed polling uh, rosters on June 5 out here, though I've sent questions to the L.A. County Registrar, Dean Logan, invited him to appear on the show to help us put folks at ease somehow about what happened. He has declined so far, even though he's been on the show many times in the past, but we will try to keep figuring that out. Last we heard, uh, the county, L.A. County, said they could not rule out hacking of the voter registration database. At least we know, we think we know, that did not happen in Maryland. But once again, underscoring the point, you have to check your registrations over and over again between now and November, if that's what it if that's what uh, you need to do, because, yes, voting still matters. And if you haven't realized that uh, yet, if you haven't realized that by now, today's disturbingly grim rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court should serve as a stark reminder of that. Those grim rulings and what they mean for all of us from the always uh, remarkably upbeat somehow Mark Joseph Stern of Slate. He is standing by to join me next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Now they're planning the crime of the century. Well, what will it be? Planning? I'd say they pulled it off, particularly at the Supreme Court. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Just one week after he took office, Donald Trump issued his first travel ban on a number of Muslim-majority countries, causing chaos at the nation's airports and starting a cascade of lawsuits and appeals. As the New York Times reminds us today, the first ban drafted in haste was promptly blocked by multiple federal courts around the nation. A second version of the travel ban issued two months later fared little better, although the Supreme Court allowed part of it to go into effect 
last June when it agreed to hear the Trump administration's appeals from the several different court decisions blocking it. But the Supreme Court dismissed those appeals in October after the second ban expired. And then in January, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a challenge to Trump's third try, which the paper characterizes as his most considered entry ban issued as a presidential proclamation last September, initially restricting travel from eight nations, six of them predominantly Muslim. That would be Iran, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Chad, Venezuela and North Korea. Chad was later removed from that list. While the restrictions varied in their details, for the most part, citizens of the countries were forbidden from emigrating to the U.S., and many of them are barred from working or studying or even vacationing here. In December, the Supreme Court allowed that third version of the ban to go into effect while legal challenges moved forward. Hawaii, several individuals and a Muslim group challenged the latest ban's limit on travel from those predominantly Muslim nations. They did not object to the portion concerning North Korea and uh, Venezuela. They said the latest ban, like the earlier ones, was tainted by religious animus and not adequately justified by national security concerns. Well... On Tuesday, in a 5-4 vote, the U.S. Supreme Court's stolen right-wing majority paid off big time. They said the president's statutory power over immigration was not undermined by his long history of incendiary statements about the dangers he says Muslims pose to Americans. The court upheld Trump's ban on travel from mostly Muslim nations in what appears to be a, quote, robust endorsement of Trump's power to control the flow of immigration into America at a time of political upheaval about the treatment of migrants at the Mexican border, says the Times. The administration hailed the decision to uphold his third version of an executive order as a, quote, tremendous victory and promised to continue using his office to defend the country against what they describe as terrorism and extremism. Three prominent Iranian-American organizations working along with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, all of whom joined in an amicus brief at the U.S. Supreme Court in support of the challengers here, they issued statements on Tuesday following the court's 5-4 to decision on Trump versus Hawaii, which finds... The Trump administration's order to restrict travel to the U.S. for citizens of several majority Muslim countries, quote, is squarely within the scope of presidential authority. But the Iranian-American group said that in their statement that, quote, as Iranian-American civil rights advocacy, community-based and legal organizations, we are saddened by the Supreme Court decision upholding the discriminatory travel ban However, they added, our fight is not over. We remain committed to protecting civil liberties of Iranian Americans and will continue to advocate for the travel ban's rejection. Uh, Kristen Clark, president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, was more direct, charging, quote, this decision is a historic and shameful sanction of discrimination, a stain on our nation's history, and a threat to our democracy. In another 5-4 to four decision, also issued on Tuesday from the stolen Republican majority, the court 
Uh, also reversed, at least for now, on First Amendment free speech grounds. Another lower court ruling which had upheld a California law requiring so-called crisis pregnancy centers, they're really anti-abortion centers, to more fully disclose their purpose uh, as anti-abortion advocates, which the state contends misrepresent themselves to patients who are seeking medical help and guidance. That was struck down today by the court majority as well. Here to offer us some guidance on all of those rulings and probably a bit more from the court in its last week before the justices head off for a three-month summer vacation and maybe even retirement for one or two of them is our Supreme Correspondent of late and always an expert legal reporter for Slate.com, Mark Joseph Stern, who has been on extra decision watch duty for us here on the broadcast this month. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks so much for having me on. One of my few bright spots in this otherwise very gloomy day. You are very kind to say as much. Uh, it is indeed a gloomy day. It's a gloomy week, a gloomy year or two, frankly. Before we get to the travel ban and the California anti-abortion cases, uh, we discussed with you last week the court's ruling that punted back two cases on partisan gerrymandering to the lower courts for uh, reconsideration. That was in Wisconsin and Maryland. This week on Monday, the court uh, similarly punted back a lower court ruling, uh, which had found that North Carolina's entire U.S. House map was un was an unlawful partisan gerrymander and needed to be redrawn in time for 2018, which now it clearly won't. And the court allowed several racially gerrymandered gerrymander districts to stand in Texas, uh, even though those were struck down by lower courts. Uh, we'll be discussing those cases, I believe, on tomorrow's broadcast with one of the plaintiffs in North Carolina. But uh, very quickly... Uh, <laughs> On the court's decision today on the travel ban and the California uh, anti-abortion groups and these uh, uh, redistricting cases, it seems like we're seeing a lot of lower court rulings overturned by decisions by the Supreme Court. Is that my imagination or is, is that unusual or is this about average for the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn one case after another from lower courts? No, you're absolutely right. It does appear that this court is kind of on a tear right now, uh, overturning court after court, uh, saying, you didn't do this right, you didn't do that right, you didn't cross your I or dot your T, uh, or even finding some flimsy reason to send a case back down. You know, the, the partisan gerrymandering case out of North Carolina was a very clean vehicle for the court to uh, resolve all of the issues that it said it didn't want to deal with in the Wisconsin and Maryland cases. And yet the court now says it doesn't want to deal with it anytime soon. Instead, it sent that decision right back down, reversed the lower court, said, think about this a little more. Just sit on it, you know, mm. mull it in light of our recent decision, uh, which it did not have to do. The same goes for Arlene's Flowers. This was a case about a florist who refused to uh, sell flowers for a same-sex couple's wedding. Uh, that was not really similar to Masterpiece Cake Shop in the sense that there was no allegation of real anti-Christian animus uh, in any of the proceedings, but the court just kicked the case back down anyway. Uh, and so I think 
think that partly these reversals are the result of a court that wants to duck and dodge as many issues as it possibly can, uh, while the five-justice conservative majority reaches out and grabs those that are near and dear to its heart mm. uh, and makes new law that kind of pushes the entire federal judiciary farther and farther to the right. <sighs> the activist uh, judiciary that the Republicans pretend they don't want, uh, except in cases where obviously they do. And it, you know, it makes one wonder what's the point of these lower courts at all if the Supremes are going to just simply find ways to overturn uh, or delay, as they're doing in this uh, North Carolina case where the, you know, the courts had wanted entirely new U.S. House maps to be drawn in time for 2018. Obviously, that's now not going to happen. Uh, but one more point on that issue, Mark. Um, in the uh, when the court uh, kicked this back down, uh, these these cases in North Carolina and then the one they approved in uh, Texas where they approved uh, uh, racial gerrymandering, both uh, justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, whose seat was stolen for him in an unprecedented fashion by Senate Republicans, they went much further than the rest of their colleagues, suggesting that the Voting Rights Act should not be applied to redistricting at all. That's new, is it? Is it not? Uh, what's their argument? Will it hold any sway with the court the next time a, a gerrymandering case, uh, possibly North Carolina's, does return to the court? Well, what's new is Justice Gorsuch announcing his agreement with Thomas on this front. This has been a long-time crusade by Justice Clarence Thomas, who loathes the Voting Rights Act. He has long called for the Voting Rights Act to be defanged and declawed and essentially overturned by the courts. Of course, he got part of his wish five years ago in Shelby County v. Holder uh, when the court gutted preclearance for historically racist states. Uh, his, his other campaign is, as you said, um, to effectively change decades and decades of precedent to hold that, in fact, the Voting Rights Act does not prohibit racial gerrymandering. Now, that is a truly outrageous reading of this law. It is atextual and ahistorical. If you sit down and read the Voting Rights Act, it becomes extremely clear in the, its original form and amendments passed by Congress uh, that Congress wanted this law to prohibit legislators from, among other things, diluting a citizen's vote because of his or her race which is, of course, exactly what racial gerrymandering involves. Uh, but Thomas and now Gorsuch uh, believe that that is untrue, that the VRA has nothing to say about racial gerrymandering, even though that is one of the central threats uh, to equal suffrage for all, regardless of race today. Uh, it is something I would be very wary of, because even though Justices uh, John Roberts and, and Samuel Alito have not announced their support for that position, they also played coy on the Voting Rights Act preclearance rule for years until they suddenly decided, yes, now it's time for Shelby County to, you know, to overturn this fundamental tenet of the VRA. So it, it's something I think we are not paying enough attention to uh, and not activated by um, because we're so uh, you know, disturbed and fed up with and consumed by the threats in front of our faces. Yeah. But this is something that is absolutely coming down the pipeline. And if Trump gets even one more appointment to the Supreme Court, I think the VRA could be very much in danger. 
and uh, the the ruling on Monday uh, in those North Carolina and Texas cases uh, came on the five year anniversary of that uh, Shelby County case that gutted that key portion of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so, yeah, very grim and also underscores what I've been talking about over the past week or two that just drives me absolutely nuts. Uh, you know, when I hear from uh, progressives, some progressives that, oh, there's really no difference. The Democrats are just as bad as the Republicans, yada, yada. Well, you know what? You can look at this grim, grim week and see what the court is doing here that's going to affect us for generations. And I think that puts the lie to this nonsense that, oh, both sides are the same. Uh, yes, and just to be clear, yeah. every single one of the decisions that we're talking about right now yeah. would have come out differently under Merrick Garland. Uh, if Justice Merrick Garland were sitting on the Supreme Court right now instead of Justice Neil Gorsuch, we would have an end to partisan gerrymandering, an end to racial gerrymandering, an end to voter suppression, uh, an end to uh, crisis pregnancy centers' efforts to be lawless and not have to comply with basic medical licensing. Uh, the travel ban would be struck down. I mean, it's just, it's almost brutal to think about how all of these cases would turn out if the man who should be on the court were on the court. It has been Justice Gorsuch's decisive fifth vote in every single case that has made them turn out the way that they are. And I think you're absolutely right. Liberals need to keep that in mind as they fume about the Democratic Party's latest failings. No one has claimed that it's a perfect party, but the notion that it's just not that different from Republicans, uh, if you think that, you need to look at our Supreme Court. Yeah, and you need to be pretty goddamn privileged uh, to uh, feel okay about it anyway. Uh, let me go against these uh, Democrats because they are corporatists and they're centrists, and they are, and you should go against them in that regard, challenge them in primaries and, and everything else, but to say there is no difference when we're seeing the damage being done here by this court, stolen by the Republicans is maddening. All right. Uh, just to keep us uh, maddened here, uh, Trump uh, has said that his Muslim travel ban is needed to protect the U.S. from attacks by Islamic militants. Lower courts blocked the third version of his travel ban like they did all the ones before it. Uh, and yet uh, today the court gave a five to four blessing to uh, Donald Trump's policy. Uh, the challengers had argued the policy was motivated by Trump's enmity toward his animus toward Muslims. So what did Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the opinion for the majority, say to that argument? Well, noticeably, the Chief Justice did not say that Donald Trump is perfectly fine with Muslims and has no problem with Islam. Uh, instead, what the Chief Justice said was that the judiciary has a duty to defer to the executive in matters of national security uh, so long as the executive's actual uh, proclamations and orders uh, are facially neutral. So put differently, the judiciary does not get to look beyond the text of the actual pieces of paper that the president signs when he is commanding some kind of national security policy. Uh, it just has to look at that 
that paper, it can't look into his heart, into his soul, or into his comments surrounding the policy. Uh, and so what the Chief Justice said was, well, if we just look at this order, the president says it's necessary for national security, and we're just a court, just a little old court, so we're going to have to defer to him, ignore all of his anti-Muslim comments. Yeah, the, the comments actually appear in the majority opinion, but Roberts waves them away and says, well, we're not going to think about those or even acknowledge that they really matter, uh, because all we can do as a court is ask if the president has said that there is a plausible national security concern here. We choose to believe that there is, uh, and so we're going to say that this order is entirely proper and entirely constitutional. Does does that narrow uh, view of a policy like this, will this now extend? I can think of all sorts of things from, you know, photo ID voting restrictions, which we have, you know, Republicans on tape, uh, you know, saying that this is needed to win elections. It's not about stopping voter fraud or even the admission in North Carolina and the gerrymandering, gerrymandering case where you've got you know, Republicans proudly saying, yes, we gerrymandered on purpose uh, to give a political advantage to Republicans. Does this mean that uh, when judging these sorts of policies, we cannot we can no longer look at the mindset, the thinking, the statements of the uh, the, the lawmakers and policymakers who actually put these policies and laws into effect? Well, the court seems to be trending in that direction, uh, at least when it suits the majority. So, for instance, in the Texas racial gerrymandering case, uh, Justice Alito's opinion for the court says, yeah, there are all kinds of comments uh, and records that suggest that Texas legislators are racist and wanted to pack Hispanics into a few districts uh, and distribute and dilute their votes. Uh, but we're just going to ignore that, uh, because to us, this looks like just the usual kind of redistricting, uh, even though this was passed in a special session with the normal rules suspended, uh, and a bunch of legislators said that they didn't like Hispanics. We're just going to ignore all that, uh, because, <laughs> in short, we're okay with racial gerrymandering. Uh, but if you compare that to Masterpiece Cake Shop, in which the majority mm. went out of its way yes. to really misinterpret comments by civil rights commissioners to find this bare evidence of animus toward religion. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a world of difference between the two, and the court has not really explained when, why, and how it is appropriate to look for animus in context. And so I think that's a great question, and it's one we should be asking. We learned today that when the president says it's for national security purposes, you're not allowed to look for animus. We learned yesterday that when legislators say that it's just a normal redistricting procedure, you're not allowed to look for animus. But a few weeks ago, we learned that when a hugely anti-gay Christian baker mm -hmm. um, basically drives a gay couple out of his store, uh, then you can search everywhere for animus on the part of the state just trying to protect that gay couple's interests. There's, there's a lot of hypocrisy here, and I don't know how far these rules actually go. Frankly, I don't think anyone knows, and I don't think there's a neutral principle at play here. I think this is the court's conservative majority doing whatever it wants to get the results that it wants. It sure seems like it. Um, the uh, the current version of the travel ban 
Uh, dates from September and followed what the administration called a thorough review by several federal agencies. But they did not share that review with the courts or the public, according to AP. Uh, they did not require, the court did not require the administration to actually share those reviews, even privately with the courts. Is that true? It makes me think, how can that be? And uh, frankly, is this a sort of, if that is true, is this a sort of literally uh, blind deference to national security issues that seems to be shown by uh, not just this Supreme Court, but, you know, many courts over the years to uh, presidential administrations? Yes. The Department of Homeland Security and the Trump administration did not share uh, all of the information that it purported to gather uh, in its uh, allegedly extensive fact-finding mission uh, in order in the run-up to this ban, uh, which was, I think, almost certainly a sort of pretextual uh, window dressing kind of thing, uh, not really the extensive review that the administration claims, but we'll never know, uh, because again, the administration kept a lot of this stuff secret, and as you said, did not turn a great deal of it over to the courts. Uh, and instead told the Supreme Court, hey, just trust us on this. Uh, and the court did. And the reason that that's so troubling, I think, is because, you know, the, the clear precedent for this case is Korematsu, in mm -hmm. which the Supreme Court allowed uh, the government to send Japanese people to uh, internment camps. Now, it, Justice Roberts' opinion purports to overturn Korematsu. I think it's open to question whether he really does. Um, but at the same time, he draws from the reasoning in the majority's decision in Korematsu, which basically says, we don't get to decide when there's an emergency. We don't get to decide what's national security. Well, that's exactly what led the court down the road to Korematsu, because the Korematsu court said exactly that. It said, well, we trust the president when the president says Japanese people are traitors and there's going to be a Japanese invasion. Uh, and now the court is saying, well, we trust the president when he says we have to keep all these Muslims out of the country. It's a national emergency. Same reasoning, same illogic. Uh, and I fear that for all that Robert says, oh, Korematsu was bad, it was wrong, uh, Korematsu very much lives on in spirit in today's decision. And that, of course, is uh, you know one of the cases that has been you know, the Supreme Court's most widely discredited opinions, I think, along with Dred Scott. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she cited uh, in her dissent, a blistering dissent, uh, which I think she read from the bench, that the decision today was no better than Korematsu. But I note that uh, she and, was it um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote their own dissent? Justice Breyer and Elena Kagan wrote a separate dissent. Why was there, what was the difference between their two dissents? Why didn't they uh, have a united voice here in response? Well, Justice Sotomayor's dissent was a lot fiercer and sharper. She quoted extensively from the record of Trump's anti-Muslim comments, uh, she said, this is, in short, this guy is a bigot, it's obvious. She was very blistering, um, very, very sharp elbow toward the majority, uh, and rested her decision entirely on, or largely on, Trump's anti-Muslim animus. Uh, Justices Breyer and Kagan, who wrote their, their own separate dissent, 
they did acknowledge that they believed this order um, was impermissible because of the anti-Muslim animus that underlies it. So they came to the same conclusion, but they basically didn't want to uh, reach that conclusion as vigorously and furiously and explicitly uh, as Justice Sotomayor did, along with Justice Ruth mm. Bader Ginsburg, uh, they have a reputation as being more moderate justices. I think they wanted to preserve that reputation. Uh, and so I think that's really what lay behind the separate dissent. They wanted to keep some room for, quote-unquote, civility, uh, to say, well, we're not going all the way in on calling the president a bigot, but this is still troubling enough to us that if we had one more vote, we too would strike it down. Of course, the uh, White House uh, trumpeted the decision, uh, saying that it's a profound vindication uh, for their policy following, quote, months of hysterical commentary from the media and Democratic politicians who refuse to do what it takes to secure our border and country. The uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights blasted the decision, uh, said the fight is not over. But is the fight over? Are there any uh, further options here in court? Uh, Did the Tuesday's decision leave the door open somewhere for another challenge to this? Or is... Is that it? And and does that mean the president can, you know, at this point, add every other Muslim-majority nation in the world to his list of banned countries now if he wants to? Well, you know, I think that the reality is any future challenge is going to hit this same Supreme Court or perhaps an even more conservative court. So it's important to remember uh, what lies at the end of the road. I do think that there is some room for uh, case-by-case challenges uh, brought by individuals who apply for the waiver process uh, and do not receive it for no good reason. So, you know, this version of the travel ban allows individuals to uh, apply to the U.S. government to say, hey, I'm covered by this, but I deserve an exception uh, for this reason. And the government is generally supposed to grant those exceptions. Now, we know, and Justice Sotomayor notes this in her dissent, we know that it hasn't been at all and hasn't been giving good reasons for its refusal to do so. So far, the waiver process looks like it's pretty much a sham. Uh, But Roberts does not close the door entirely uh, on individuals being able to challenge a potentially arbitrary denial uh, of a waiver. And Justice Kennedy, in his concurrence, sort of gestures in that direction as well. So I think there is a chance that individual injustices could be redressed. But on the whole, uh, there's just not much more, I think, that the plaintiffs or anybody else can do to bring the whole ban toppling down. And finally, on this point, Mark Joseph Stern, uh, 17 states announced today they were suing the Trump administration to reunite separated migrant families. Uh, in what is the first legal challenge from states against Trump's so-called zero-tolerance policy at our uh, border with Mexico. What, if anything, does the uh, court's ruling today on the Muslim travel ban tell us about the current and ongoing fights over his extreme immigration policies on the southern border? Well, you know, obviously they involve different laws, different regulations, different policies, but I would say, looking a little more broadly, uh, it seems to me that this court is not as disturbed and 
disgusted by Trump's approach to immigration as I think a majority of Americans are. This is not a court that looks at what Trump's doing and uh, recoils in horror and thinks we need to put real limits on this. Uh, this is a court that's eager to bless the president's uh, moves in the realm of national security uh, and to basically believe his pretext even when it's flagrantly BS. Uh, and so my concern is that if the court is willing to uphold Korematsu 2.0 that keeps millions and millions of Muslims out of this country for no good reason, it's also willing to uphold whatever you want to call Trump's family separation, zero-tolerance policy at the southern border that's keeping these families apart. Uh, it seems to me, if you combine this with a few other decisions earlier in the term that were really bad on immigration, that the court just wants to take itself out of the equation mm. uh, when it comes to immigration. It doesn't want to stop Trump uh, from, from doing whatever he wants in this field. Uh, it thinks it'd be political or unwise or whatever. Five justices just don't want to intervene, and uh, on the Supreme Court, five justices is all that it really takes. It just seems like they want to give deference to the executive, at least as long as the executive is a Republican. Uh, we've got just a few minutes here, Mark, very few. Uh, California's law requiring Christian-based anti-abortion centers known as crisis uh, uh, pregnancy centers the California law that they must do things like post notices about the availability of state subsidized abortion and birth control and so forth. That, too, was struck down, at least for now, in another five to four ruling on Tuesday. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote for the majority and the court has now barred on First Amendment free speech grounds California's law to you know, prevent these crisis pregnancy centers essentially from lying to patients about their rights and about medical care. This is a free speech issue, the freedom to essentially lie and misrepresent when it comes to medical issues, Mark? Uh, apparently so, but only sometimes. This is, a, this is a very bizarre ruling, and I actually think that if Chief Justice John Roberts were really eager to get narrow uh, majority opinions that brought a lot of justices on board, he could have done so in this case. There are parts of the California law that did seem to go a little too far. For instance, requiring notices uh, be posted in 13 different languages. Uh, there were some concerns that uh, this would end up being really expensive and under some circumstances. Uh, and I think that you could have gotten justices, uh, Elena Kager and Stephen Breyer, to join a narrow decision that nips away at part of the law and sends it back down for further consideration and fact-finding, because there's no real record in this case. We don't know how it played out, because the Supreme Court stepped in and, you know, took it off California's hands. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts gave the majority opinion to Clarence Thomas, who wrote an astonishingly broad decision that effectively says the government has no power to regulate professional speech, no power to regulate medical speech or doctor's speech, except when they are telling abortion patients not to get abortions. That's totally different, according to Clarence Thomas, and that is allowed. But uh, the government does not get to tell crisis pregnancy centers 
that they have to inform patients that they do not provide abortions and other reproductive care. So this was just, I think, a pretty flagrant example uh, of the court saying, well, we want to lay down this rule because it helps pro-lifers, but in the one instance that it might help pro-choicers, we're going to change the rule so that it doesn't even help them at all. Does, uh, in theory, this court, uh, I'm sorry, this, this case, this law uh, could still be heard now in, in the lower courts? Do I understand that correctly? And if I do, does it tell it that even if the lower court hears this and uh, permanently upholds California's law, that the Supreme Court would just likely overturn it again anyway? Yes, you're, you're right on both counts. Justice Thomas says in a footnote that there is a possibility that California could find a bunch of facts proving that these crisis pregnancy centers are misleading or even defrauding patients. Um, but I think that the court's aggressive intervention uh, at this early date, combined with the sweeping decision that Thomas wrote, pretty much forecloses that path for California. I think if the state has any path forward, it would try to go back to the drawing board and write a narrower version of this law. I'm not sure what that would look like. It's not a task I would be eager to undertake. Uh, But I think this particular bill is probably dead because uh, in a concurring opinion written by Justice Kennedy and joined by Roberts, Alito, and Gorsuch, uh, uh, these, these concurring justices said this is basically authoritarian mind control by California. Um, we think that California is slipping into an authoritarian regime, and we are disgusted by what we see. Um, so clearly the court's conservatives, not happy with California's efforts here, not eager to give the state a second bite at the apple to defend this or any similar law. Wow. All right, we got to get out here, uh, Mark, but uh, there's another uh, case or two still to come down uh, the pike over the next uh, few days. Uh, and then the question of potential retirements from uh, by some of these justices. But we're going to have to hold that conversation for another day, my friend. We may talk to you again before the uh, 4th of July uh, break happens. So don't don't mind if we bother you yet again before you go on holiday. Mark Joseph Stern, uh, you can read about all of this terrible news today at Slate.com, where he writes on the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, and much more. You can also follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Let's hope the next time we talk, it's not even a grimmer day, Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, I think the odds are that it will be, but I will try to stay optimistic. You got a prediction about who's retiring? Uh, I don't know that anybody's retiring, but I think the court's about to crush public sector unions uh, pretty much forever. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, brother. Bye-bye. Okay, Desi Doyen is joining us next. She is on deck with the Green News Report with even more fantastic news. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. 
please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, we started the uh, previous segment with the uh, the old Super Tramp song, Crime of the Century. <laughs> yes. I wasn't even talking about, uh, forget about uh, whether Donald Trump stole the election, whether Russia stole it for him, all of that stuff. I was talking about just the, actually, uh, in my head, when I wanted to play that song, I'm thinking about the Supreme Court. That oh, yeah. was the crime of the century. Yes. That's going to affect uh, this nation for another century. At least. At least. Yeah. Yep. That's where we are. And yes, where else are we? Oh, yeah. Oil spills, floods, all kinds of good news in our latest Green News Report. 32 of the train cars derailed and 14 of them leaked crude oil after the derailment. Double whammy, extreme rain and floods delay cleanup of massive tar sands oil spill in Iowa. And they warn President Trump is ignoring one of the reasons why ticks and mosquitoes are so prolific climate change. Experts say diseases caused by ticks and mosquitoes have tripled in the United States thanks to global warming. If it seems like we're getting more torrential downpours and floods, it's because we are. Plus, Dear Mr. President, there are two grand new bridges being proposed in Detroit between America and Canada. A new ad on Fox News aimed at one person hopes to stop a new bridge for Detroit. All of that bridge burning and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We have a simple request. Please review that presidential permit. Then... Revoke that presidential permit. I got a better idea. Let's just revoke the president. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, burning all of that tar sands oil leads to climate change. Climate change leads to increased rain. Rain leads to increased flooding. Flooding leads to a new train derailment carrying a whole bunch of cars with tar sands oil on it. I guess it's just the circle of life in the Trump era. (laughs) Well, that's one way of looking at it. But yes, more than 30 oil train cars derailed in northwest Iowa on Friday, dumping an estimated 230,000 gallons of sticky tar sands crude oil from Alberta, Canada, into the floodwaters of the Little Rock River, which has flooded due to an extreme rainfall event up to eight inches an hour. Officials believe that the floodwaters may have eroded the train tracks Downstream water systems have been forced to shut their drinking water intakes. Iowa's Republican Governor Kim Reynolds declared a disaster emergency and said that the flood is hampering the cleanup. It's a lot of mud right there, so they, they're, they're sunk in pretty good. They have to remove the contents before they could even begin, especially as volatile as the soil is right now with the amount of water that we've had. And there are concerns tonight, not just about the drinking water in the area, but as far as 150 miles 
downstream towards the Missouri River. Yep, and officials now claim that nearly half of the spilled oil has been contained, but if previous tar sand spills into rivers are any indication here in the U.S., full cleanup is not possible. Now, if it seems to you like the U.S. is getting more of these torrential downpours, you are right. Scientists at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, confirmed this week that extreme rainfall events have increased markedly in the United States since the 1950s due to global warming. And they explain that that's why the country has seen an increase in dangerous flash floods. They also say that the warming atmosphere appears to be making storms geographically larger. Since May, at least five U.S. cities have been hit with these one-two punches of record rains and flash floods that have overwhelmed their infrastructure. NCAR projects that thunderstorms could become up to 90 percent larger by the end of this century. Mm. Meanwhile, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control reports that cases of vector-borne diseases, these are diseases caused by viruses and bacteria that are carried by ticks and mosquitoes, that those diseases have tripled in the United States since 2004. And the CDC says climate change is the primary factor. It has expanded the range of tropical diseases across the U.S. because higher temperatures from global warming have expanded the geographic range in which these diseases and these bugs thrive. Worse, the U.S. is not ready for the increasing spread of these deadly bugs, according to Dr. Irving Redlener of Columbia University here in an interview with CNN. We are very far from being ready to do either the surveillance necessary or the controls necessary to keep these uh, kinds of diseases from spreading. Well, that's fantastic news. Finally, in Detroit, Michigan, the wealthy Maroon family is trying a new tactic to stop a major infrastructure upgrade, the construction of a new bridge to relieve traffic congestion at Detroit's border with Canada. The Maroon family, for decades, has owned Detroit's only toll bridge crossing to Canada, the Ambassador Bridge, and now they want to stop the new bridge, already under construction, which is paid for 100% by Canada and will be co-owned by both Canada and Michigan. It would cut into the family's monopoly profits. So the family has a new ad aimed at just one person, President Trump, airing on Fox and Friends and aiming at his favorite target. Inexplicably, President Obama issued a presidential permit and granted a Buy American waiver for Canada. So their Canadian-owned bridge didn't have to use American steel. Well, if this ad from the Maroon family is playing on Fox and Friends, Donald Trump may just fall for it. What a Maroon. For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. continue to follow that bridge those troubled waters we'll do our best to make it through as best we can uh on our next thrilling broadcast we will have what uh results from uh five different states holding primaries on tuesday and two states holding primary runoffs we can all look forward to that and uh, and probably some more uh, disturbing decisions before this week is out from the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, yeah, minimum. But, but tune in anyway. Yeah, find out what happens. Yes. 
Uh, all right. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. My thanks, as always, to my guest uh, today, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, though we do thank those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You folks are the ones who are sure we stay on the air every day, day after day. Uh, you're the only ones who do that. Bradblog.com slash donate. We don't take political uh, foundational money, corporate money. We just rely on you. That's why we can tell you the truth. Unvarnished, uncensored truth. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.